0: Today's global consumer is very clear in their demand for safe, affordable and sustainable protein to continue to meet these rising expectations requires both leadership and collaboration with food chain stakeholders, academia and the veterinary community. Merck Animal Health is pleased to amplify the voices of leaders throughout the protein supply chain here on this podcast, caring for animals and creating trust.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining us for Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. I'm Jane Dukes with the Merck Animal Health Veterinary and Consumer Affairs Team, and I'll be hosting today's conversation on a very interesting subject, the human-animal bond. This has become a trendy topic of discussion, especially as we were all forced by the global pandemic to stay at home. We've heard all the stories about shelters emptying at the onset of the pandemic and social distancing, and I myself got a puppy during the pandemic, but that's a story for another day. Perhaps not surprisingly, a Harris poll reported that 89% of Americans said their pets brought them comfort during the pandemic, and 82% felt less lonely as a result of their pet. These statistics support the fact that the human-animal bond is more than a trend. The bond between pets and their people is not just something we think we experience, but is actually backed by science that shows the benefits of our relationships with pets to our health and well-being. My guests today are Dr. Jen Chatfield, double board certified veterinarian and co-host of the podcast, Chat with the Chatfields, which she does with her twin brother, who is also a veterinarian. Can't wait to hear more about that. And Dr. Taylor Tillery, a veterinarian and member of my team at Merck Animal Health. Jen and Taylor, welcome to the podcast and thank you both for being here today. We have a lot to unpack, so let's get started. Jen, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your podcast.
2: Oh, sure. So... My name is Jennifer Chatfield. I'm a veterinarian. I think I have challenged the idea that veterinarians can do almost any job by doing lots of different things. (laughs) So I've worked in public health and I've worked in practice as an emergency clinician and I worked full time as a zoo and wildlife vet as well. I still practice and I still work as kind of like a reserve public health person because I'm part of the national veterinary response team and I do a lot of media these days, as well as lecturing at continuing education conferences. My twin brother, Dr. Jason, and I co-host our podcast, Chats with the Chat Fields. And we are a podcast for the informed pet owner, animal lover. Yeah, basically anyone who's interested in animals in the galaxy, but we come at it from the perspective of talking about all topics. Because once you're an animal lover, you kind of look through a different prism. So we'd love it if anyone wants to tune in and join us.
1: Thanks, Jen. What about you, Dr. Tillery? Tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do for Merck Animal Health.
0: Yeah, so I'm the academic veterinarian industry liaison for the U.S. Merck Animal Health. In my role, I, I work with veterinary students, veterinary schools, and a lot of our allied partners on shared partnerships and initiatives that Merck Animal Health is, is interested in.
1: And talk to me a little bit about veterinary students. What does that mean in your academic liaison role? Yeah, so
0: I, I'm really excited about uh, you know the future veterinarians that that will be my uh, future colleagues. And and one of the things that we we get to do in this role is, is work and encourage and provide information and education to the students. Uh, that will be my, my future colleagues in the near future. So uh, I, that's one of the things that gets me excited, especially when I see how excited they are about you know becoming veterinarians and, and what their role will be in, in taking care of these animals and the clients that have them.
1: Well, that's great. So let's circle back to the human-animal bond. If we start at the beginning, the human-animal bond has existed for literally thousands of years. Humans have lived with animals and animals provided for us, they fed us, they hunted with us, they performed work on the farm. But over the past 50 to 100 years, our understanding of our relationship with animals has evolved. Fewer people are involved in farming and our pets have left the backyard and moved into the home with us. In fact, research shows that nearly half of dogs sleep in their owner's beds. And I'm sure the two of you can tell us if your dogs are sleeping in your beds as well. They've become our companions and are considered members of our families. The American Veterinary Medical Association defines the human-animal bond as a mutually beneficial and dynamic relationship between people and animals that is influenced by behaviors essential to the health and well-being of both. That's a lot. So let's start there. Dr. Jen, as a veterinarian, how do you understand and experience the human-animal bond, both personally and with your patients?
2: Okay. Holy moly. I think we could probably talk for like multiple podcast episodes just about that, right? Because it's such a huge component of the lifestyle for a veterinarian, because not only do we help people to maintain their bond with their creature, but we also have our own. And so, I mean, just the other day, so just actually yesterday in practice, I was talking with an owner of a French bulldog, one of my favorite breeds. And, uh, He had an ear infection, which is not that common in French bulldogs, but they don't really dig their big giant ears being messed with. And he had such a bond with his little um, Frencher that I said, well, there's great news here. I'm going to treat this ear infection in such a way that you don't have to medicate his ears daily at home, because I think that that's such a damaging thing. I mean, sometimes we have to do it and that's okay because the benefit outweighs that, but I love it when I can take that action out of that relationship with the owner and the pet, because it, you know, it does kind of damage it. And so, so I see it that way. I see people who bring in, you know, a 20 year old cat that they've had through college, marriage, sometimes divorce, kids, the kids have only known life with the cat. That's a huge bond for them. And so we, we kind of get to see all of that. But then I also look at other species besides dogs and cats. Yeah, like, you know, can you bond with a fish? Sure. I mean, not me, but some people can. And in fact, we did an entire episode of our podcast on Chats with the Chatfields all about does the human-animal bond exist with kind of non-traditional pets like lizards and snakes and birds, et cetera. And so I think it does. So I get to see it on full display.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. And you're right. We could spend all day on this. Dr. Tillery, why don't you jump in, talk about how you experience the human-animal bond. You have a little French bulldog, Beaujolais, correct? How do you experience the human-animal bond and, and also with customers? Because certainly it does go beyond the dog and the cat. It goes throughout other animal species.
0: Yeah, Jen, I'm I'm glad that you love French bulldogs. You know that I do as well. And and Jane, you said you got a COVID pet. Well, our Boujolet, she's uh, about a year and a half. So I guess you could call her a COVID dog as, as well. But, you know, before I even became a veterinarian, I grew up in a rural community in Oklahoma, right? And, and our dogs didn't exactly live in the bed then. Of course, now our Beaujolais does. Uh, so it's, it's a little different. You know, back then on the farm, you know, they had a job and they were supposed to protect the, the other animals of the farm and, and also protect the family, right? Us that live there. It's a little, little different on how that looked. And and now with our our and she cohabitates with my wife and I under our roof. She shares our sofas. She's got her own fancy tempur bed. She loved it so much, we had to get her a second one. And you know her breathing, because those Frenchies, they, they snore a little bit. She may sometimes sleep a little further away from us just so that she doesn't wake us up. But I, I have to say that I've personally benefited from all the joy she brings to myself. And I know that she gets joy too, right? Because part of that human-animal bond is this shared benefits. Both the animal gets benefits and and we get benefits. And and I think that's one of the great things. I I know she loves those belly rubs. Uh, And when we throw the ball, she brings the ball to me. You know, a lot of times when I'm doing these podcasts and WebExes, and then we've got this special tug thing we do, right? So I I feel like she gets joy out of it. And uh, she definitely makes us laugh at all times. That's why I feel like French Bulldogs are fantastic, just because of how that looks. But we know essentially what it does is when we have something and we have purpose, dogs and cats, some of these pets, I have a scaly snake. So when you talked about the other things, Jen, I laugh about a fish, right? I've, I've had this snake, I think, for 27 years.
2: I'm not surprised, Taylor. No surprise here.
1: Oh, my gosh. I did not know this. <laughs> she's got
0: to have him. And I think she's been named three times. And now when people ask me, I just say, well, her name is Snake. So that's snake. <laughs> I mean, real special. I don't, <laughs> Snake is a 27-year-old female creamsicle corn snake. What does creamsicle mean? That's, that's a blend between albino and normal, so it's a color-morph
2: hybrid. Yeah, but Taylor, don't you feel like you have a bond with that snake? I mean, 27 years? How many people have you known for 27 years?
0: I think she's outlasted many of them, Jen. You know, I, I tell people when you when you buy your child an animal, just, just remember them. they may live a long time, right? So that's a commitment, so... She's pretty reliant on myself to provide for us. You know, she's not doing any hunting these days. I think she's an old gal and way past her prime. So, but back to what we were talking about on the human animal bond and what it does for people, you know, I think it just releases the good hormones like serotonin and oxytocin. I know that we've seen what that does and then what that does, it drops our cortisol levels, So it really reduces our stress. Uh, We've seen that it improves, you know, exercise and anything about exercise and fitness is uh, is good. So the blood pressure component that Jen mentioned. So I, I think those are all fantastic things. And, and I think there's more that we'll find out as, as we continue. You know, service animals do so many things for, for folks with disabilities when we look at that. And so there's that component. But when we, we pull back, like when we look at a service animal right now, there's just some challenges with the, the language and, and what that means because a service animal right now means that it, it does a specific task for an individual. But there is the the emotional component and the uh, the mental component and the stimulation and, and what that can do to lower our stress levels. So I think you know we we got to get a little further on on how we name these things. I guess is what I would say. But yes, I think it's special.
1: Right, right. And I have to just insert here that I think chocolate lab puppies would fall outside of this realm. My puppy increases my stress tremendously. She's challenging. <laughs> but um, anyway, let's talk about the animal side. How does the human animal bond? benefit the animal. Animals can't talk. So how do we know it's benefiting the animal and, and what are the signs?
2: So, I mean, I'll take off on that because Taylor actually just already alluded to that with his snake, right? That snake is getting better care, right? It's protected from anything that wants to eat it. It's protected from bougelet for sure, right? Who might want to taste it because that's what French bulldogs do and it gets fed regularly. It doesn't have to worry about that, I guess, even with its reptilian brain, it might worry. So one of the things is those pets get incredible care. We know it extends their lifespan significantly because they're safe. And, you know, we, we anthropomorphize a lot with companion animals for sure. But, you know, I feel like my Frenchie's is happy when I come home, <laughs> I think she enjoys it. I know for a fact, she enjoys every one of the toys that are littering my cottage right now for her. And so I think that they also get that bond because if you've ever seen a dog or a cat, not necessarily cats as much because they're cats, right? But dogs for sure. If you've seen a dog that doesn't have his person or her person, or they've never, had the opportunity to bond with a lovely person, they have a totally different disposition from a dog that has been well-loved and had that bond developed with a person. And so I, I do think even if we can't clearly define what that component is for the animal's benefit, I think it's still nonetheless very real.
1: Right. Right. So interestingly, I have millennial children, and I I watch what the millennials do and how they operate very curiously. But the human-animal bond has been described as paralleling the infant-parent relationship. And I see this with my own daughter, my oldest daughter, who's not married and has two dogs. They're her children. Research shows, going back to the data, that millennials are very embracing of their role as pet parents. And according to a Harris poll, 71% of them consider their pet to be their starter child, What's your take on that? Is that is that a good thing? You know, I I think it is. Is Boujolay your starter child?
0: <laughs> definitely our starter child. I think she's my finishing child, right? I just hope she lives to be <laughs> twenty seven years old, like my snake. <laughs> I'm not sure about the feelings of my snake. That's interesting. When you talk about anthropomorphism, we do that oftentimes as veterinarians, and I know that general population out there as well. I and mean, we talk about you know feelings and, and human feelings. Only we know what we're feeling oftentimes, and you know, when you look at anthropomorphism, I have to laugh. I'm thinking, you know, there's two different types. Right? There's interpretive and there's an imaginative. And interpretive is is when you look at the, you know, our perceived intention, and that's the emotion or beliefs based on an animals' behaviors. And and I don't know if that's really necessarily bad, uh, but it's something that we definitely do. But then there's the other side, like imaginative. And to me, that's like when you look at your cat that's constantly just sitting right there in front of the, the refrigerator. And you think, man, he's constantly hungry. And so you feed him and he becomes overly fluffy and then maybe doesn't live to be twenty seven years old. So I, I think there's the interpret of the imaginative part. So I think we it's interesting when we talk about fur children and I, I call mine our fur child and I, I just wish that we could claim her on our tax write-offs at the end of the year, and that'd be fantastic.
2: Can I weigh in on that a little bit, Jane? Yes. So yeah. I, sure. So I think that's interesting too, because Taylor and I, y'all can't see us, but I think we're from different generations. And so I think the longer we live, right? Cause so millennials, I think, you know, pets have lived in the house for most of their lives, right? Like, you know, it wasn't a situation. Whereas for me, like when I was growing up on the farm, we had dogs, we raised old English sheepdogs, but that was before The parasitologists had figured out that fleas actually, you know, are on the dog, like not in the environment by themselves. And so we started like in 19, late 80s, right? Like 1989 or something. They started finally doing flea prevention, targeting fleas on the creature versus the bed. And so then that's when really the American dog story took off because then it wasn't as disgusting as my grandmother used to think it was for (laughs) for the dog to come in the house because we had one dog. She would come in the house sometimes. I cringe now, right? But that's just how it was. The other dog didn't come in and and they certainly didn't sleep in the house if they slept in the garage. But if you've lived your whole life With effective flea and tick prevention and, you know, the value of routine gastrointestinal deworming and that safety component, the dog then escalates one level higher, kind of with each generation removed from the lack of such prevention. And so I think we're just seeing kind of a natural evolution of the pet within our society as we can live more safely, more closely with them. So, I mean, I find it quite interesting.
1: (laughs) It is. It is interesting. And, you know, back to the generational thing, when I was growing up, my mother would never allow a dog in the house. My dog had a dog house and he lived in the backyard and now raising my own family, we've always had two dogs and they've always been in the house. And I think it's been a really important part of um, the kids growing up.
2: That goes back to another benefit that that didn't actually didn't come up, but that now we know there's data that shows that children that grow up with pets in close proximity, living in the home or living in grandma's home that they go to, you know, weekly or whatever, they actually have fewer allergy related issues and more robust immune system as they grow. So yet another benefit to having a pet in your family, you know, let alone the, the value of, you know, empathy and caring for another creature more than you do yourself and all those things, but just that immune system.
1: That's great. I know that we see my kids when they were in college, sometimes they would bring dogs or cats, you know, onto the campus during finals week, which helped reduce the stress. So there's definitely something to this.
2: So when I first came out of vet school, I was really poor. I had no money and I owed the government a ton of money, right? Like a lot of new grads from vet school, but I had a dog and uh, she was a great dog. She was a red border collie, best ever. And she went everywhere with me. I got her in second year of vet school. It was my first dog that I had ever had as a grown-up, as my own dog. And when I started working, I was afraid, like most veterinarians, when you first get out of school, you're a little nervous, right? She went to work with me. I had a night job and a day job and I would drive back and forth between the two and she would go. And at night when I was there and felt like I couldn't figure stuff out or whatever, I didn't realize the impact of her being there made me feel like I didn't go to work alone, which sounds silly. It sounds very silly, but it felt like I had a teammate there, somebody who was just interested in how it went for me so that when she didn't come with me. So a number of years later, I took a couple of shifts at a new place and she didn't come with me. I mean, I felt nearly naked showing up at that clinic and I thought, well, that's just silly but it's not.
1: <laughs> it's I, lo- I love that. I love that story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good place to pivot because you're a veterinarian and we're talking about your well-being, your mental health and your well-being. And-, and Merck Animal Health finds that to be a very important topic. We fielded our third study on well-being as veterinarians. Taylor, why don't you jump in here? Because this topic has become vitally important during the pandemic because people have been isolated. And Jen talked about taking her dog to work. Talk about Merck Animal House you know, vet well-being study and, and how that factors in here?
0: I think everybody, you know, well-being has taken a little bit of a nose turn, you know, over the last couple of years. Gosh, unless you just get fueled off of, of seeing nobody, it's challenge, right? So, and I think some of these restrictions, they put some challenges on us as we isolated and lived in these caves and locked down and talked to these these computer screens, you know, they don't respond the same. I, I'm not sure when I'm talking to somebody's picture on a screen if it's the same as when I meet them in person, but maybe it is. Maybe this is the new normal. I just need to get used to it. But the reality of this is we have recent data and it looked at those that had pets and those that did not. And, and what we do know from that COVID data was that, you know, pet owners were less likely to have declines in both mental health and loneliness. When you're sitting at home thinking like, what is everybody else doing? And you're staring at your phone and all the social media going through that. And you're thinking everybody else is having so much more fun than me. They're living their best life. And I'm just struggling, right? Having that pet at least keeps you from being too lonely as you stare at that void. You know, and, and I think one of the good things there is, is, yes, so you touched on it, Jane. We at Merck Animal Health, we have uh, invested looking at what does well-being look like in the veterinary profession. And we know we have our own challenges in the, the veterinary profession, and, and I believe this year we expanded that to also look at the para staff, so the veterinary technicians, which I think are so important towards keeping a, a hospital you know, running efficiently, and, and the well-being of, of us as veterinarians and veterinary staff is, is incredibly important, and, and it's been challenged, uh, just like most of the general population out there, and so I'm, I'm excited that Merck continues to, to dedicate funds to learn more about this important space so that we can hopefully you know, get rid of some of the the challenges associated with even talking about uh, well-being and having those discussions. But I hope we also get to continue to move this discussion forward towards how do we make the veterinary profession better? How do we make people better? What does that look like? And so I think that's what we're looking to do as we look at the third iteration of of our well-being study and and look at some of the components that affect well-being, such as stress and and being disconnected, like we are right now. So. Those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts around veterinary well-being?
1: And she said she graduated from vet school and had two jobs.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like That's stressful. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was much less stressful than not having enough money to make payments. <laughs> so you got to pick your poison, I think, a little bit. But no, um, I mean, what did I spend all that time going to school for if it wasn't to, to perform the magic, right? So i I had a side hustle before they were cool. I do love that Merck is looking for data on things like veterinary well-being. Veterinary well-being wasn't even a phrase in the vernacular until, what, 10 years ago, maybe at the the earliest. So there's been a lot of things. Again, there's no single variable that I think we can point to. So there's been a a massive shift in the society. There's fewer people who are coming from what we call a traditional agricultural background. There's fewer people living on farms. And there's fewer people from farms going to vet school. And so the folks that are in vet school, they come to it with a different shared experience. It's not good or bad, it's different. And that also reflects the shifting nature of society where Again, there is almost no better creature to be on the face of the earth than an American dog. They've just skyrocketed to this pedestal in our society. And I say that, and my dog has her own sofa. Okay. So I say it because I'm talking about me. I mean, it's stupid how much I like this little dog. But I think that that has not necessarily been addressed in the veterinary profession, because then how do you handle that? What are the expectations? Because growing up in Texas, we say, if you have livestock, you have dead stock. And I think that the unreasonable expectation that every creature is going to live forever is one that is subconscious or that as a veterinarian, that you're going to be able to, you know, quote, fix every creature that comes in front of you but I think remembering that we are veterinarians who provide care and make recommendations for other people's pets. It's not my pet. It's not my decision to make. It's their decision. Um, now they, they make it hopefully with my guidance and recommendations, but it is indeed still their pet. And I think when we as veterinarians kind of blur that line for ourselves, that's when that emotional component can become negative for us. And so I think that that is a real issue because it's not a, you know, a personal affront. It's not a, a mark of personal failure. And I think that people in our profession sometimes forget that.
1: Right. I was going to ask about that. So as pet owners, we experience our human animal bond, but then as veterinarians, do you also form a bond with your clients, pets, and then also with your clients, not everything in veterinary medicine is happy. You know, Right? anybody who's a well, pet knows there comes a sad day. Do you well, take Jane. that on or or how do you protect yourself?
2: Jane, Jane, Jane. Yes. Let me go ahead and dispel that. No creature that I provide care for ever gets sick and or dies. That's just, oh, I mean, come I, on. I need no. to travel to you to be my veterinarian. <laughs> no, of course, because, because nothing lives forever, right? But I think that's that's a good point. And that's the other thing about this topic, right? A human-animal bond, because it's, it's so broad. And it can be good and it can be bad. And so for me with clients, sure, I develop a bond with some of my patients and some of my clients, but it is nowhere near the same as the bond I developed with Cosette, my farm fresh Frenchie, right? You know, it's not going to be anywhere near the bond that that pet owner has with their pet, right? I don't live with that pet, but I care about them right now. I want them to be comfortable and I want them to get better. And I love seeing them again, But it's, you know, my day's not ruined because I didn't see them that day necessarily. Whereas for a pet owner, it's very different. So I think Taylor like is right on track with educating veterinarians that it's okay to have a little bit of disconnect. That's not a bad word. That doesn't mean you're, you know, a cruel and cold-hearted person. It means that you recognize your role in that animal's life. And so I think that's an important key. What do you think, Taylor? Well, you
0: know, it's interesting, Jen. I, I agree. None of my pets ever, ever, uh, they, they all live
1: forever because I'm the best. <laughs> that player. snake, that snake is goodness. sure on its way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's, it is hard. I've worked almost every role in a veterinary hospital, you know, from a tech in the back to a, a veterinary in a general practice to emergency. And now, you know, I, I pretty much just provide concierge service when I'm not completely busy with everything I do uh, at Merck. And, and then there's the shelter side of things. But, you know, it, it is true, right? And there's different feelings and emotions and and grief is one of them, right? And And I think Experiencing grief, you know, at the end of life is, is something that allows us to also recognize the diversity between grief and joy and what it looks like. But but when you're a general practicing veterinarian, I think that empathy component, you're right. A, a pet owner, if they spend so much time, they, they grow such a strong bond, then that that grief is probably gonna be more than than say if I'm just the emergency vet and I only see that pet once, I, I may not have that same level of empathy. And I think where we fall into the, the challenges with our profession is that, you know, we do want to, to do so much for both that, that client and their pet. And it's it's sort of like a pediatricians when we talked about that triad of having a child and what that component looks like. But if you're a general practitioner and and I've grown a really strong bond with that owner, you know, for the last 12, 13, we'll say 27 years like my snake. right? I've seen it that many times, like multiple times a year. And I've snake that comes in and, and the owner, and they always tell me, and then it comes to that time where, you know, it's not going to be a good discussion. It does get hard. I think it does weigh on you sometimes. And I think that's okay, but figuring out what are the coping mechanisms to deal with grief, you know, both for the owner and for the veterinarian.
1: Taylor, as we try to wrap this up, I could go on with this forever, but what do you think they should be teaching in vet school About the human animal bond that would help these new veterinarians coming out, whether they were going to be a livestock veterinarian, because certainly I think veterinarians or farmers and ranchers, they have relationships with their livestock, you know, and um, what should the vet schools be training or teaching new veterinarians about the human animal bond?
0: Jane, I have to agree with you on that. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I know when we talk about veterinarians, oftentimes we're just talking about ones that take care of the companion animals, right? Or or maybe the snakes and the lizards and, and some fish if you're Jen, and and maybe like I don't even know an anteater or something that lives in a zoo, right, Jim? But but there is the the livestock component of it too, right? And so I think that's important. And sometimes having that. Just the ability to step back and recognize the different people have different viewpoints on that. And, and I grew up on a farm and I, I couldn't agree more. I loved on the cows and I didn't understand when the, the steer got big enough that it was no longer going to be the steer that was um, eating out of my hands. Right. That was a challenge as a child. Other people don't have that experience growing up to grow up on a farm. But what should they be teaching specifically You know, I I think one of the things that's important is that we continue to have a diverse group of individuals that become veterinarians. And and sometimes I'm not so sure that we're where we need to be. Uh, It seems like our our population of individuals is is coming from, you know, mostly one area, right? They're coming from urban, suburban. I'm only going to be a dog cat vet. So they might not be seeing that perspective from somebody that owns livestock or et cetera. And so I I think just getting them to to recognize and be put into some of those situations where they will uh, you know, maybe understand what that looks like or or getting them to to experience that. I think that's one of the challenges is a lot of times our feelings on human-animal bond come from our our own experiences. And I think if we can use data, if we can continue to evolve the story of what that looks like and, and maybe get different individuals to tell it from different perspectives, on what human-animal bond is to them, for different people within the realm of whether they're caring for animals, treating animals, or taking care of animals, I think those are three different spectrums. Jen, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, along those lines, I think if folks can get out of vet school recognizing that they were they wear a stethoscope and a and a lab coat or scrubs instead of black robes, I think that would be a huge step toward improving all of the characteristics you're talking about, right? Diversity, recognition that people can bond with animals that those folks don't think they can, and recognizing that that bond looks different for every person and every creature.
1: This has been an awesome conversation, and I think that's a good place to wrap it. Taylor and Jen, thank you for joining me today on Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. It's been a pleasure to dive into this topic with you, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed learning more about the benefits we experience from the relationships we have with the animals in our lives. As a dog mom, I know that I sure did. And thank you to our listeners for joining us during this conversation. We hope you continue to find our podcast interesting and enlightening. Look for Dr. Jen's podcast, Chat with the Chatfields. And until next time, give your pet an extra scratch or your livestock just a little bit more feed. Thanks, everyone.